Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Cheeseman, host of the series, and with April Bickham, I convene the Interpretation, Method and Critique Network at the Australian National University. For this episode, I'm joined by Kevin Funk, a fellow with the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University, affiliated with the Department of Political Science and Latin American Studies. Kevin is the author of Rooted Globalism, Arab Latin American Business Elites, and the Politics of Global Imaginaries, published in 2022 by Indiana University Press. Kevin, thanks a lot for coming on to the series. It's a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Kevin, who are these Arab Latin American business elites and why write a book about them? It's kind of a population that seems a bit esoteric upon first glance. When I was beginning to study Latin America seriously as an undergraduate student, it was not a population that I had come across. But as I spent more time in the region um, and furthered my study, I learned more about this kind of diverse cultural mosaic that makes up the Latin American reality. One of the stories that I tell in the book has to do with the fact that there's a significant migratory history of linkages between the regions. It's a lot of detail surrounding when people started arriving and for what reason. But certainly in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a large population um, of people from various parts of the Ottoman Empire, lots of people from contemporary Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine um, especially, who then arrived to various countries throughout the region. And in many cases, as a kind of general community dynamic, experienced a significant amount of class mobility. And so throughout Latin America, there's a significant class of Arab descendant political elites, economic elites, and others who are well known in the cultural and in other kinds of spheres. And so I became really interested for various reasons in thinking about this group. It's a different way of thinking about Latin America vis-a-vis the kind of homogeneous view that's often held of the region and its population or a view that doesn't really take into account the diverse migratory um, linkages. And I was thinking about the presence of this group at a particular moment in time. I really started working on this project in the early 2010s, although the seeds um, were planted a bit earlier. And this was a time when, with Lula being in power, kind of the end of the Lula years in Brazil, and other so-called left turn or pink tide leaders who were very interested in building different kinds of international relations um, with other regions around the world. It was a very interesting moment in watching how Latin American countries like Brazil and some of the other larger, more internationally oriented states were building these new kinds of linkages and then seeing the role of Arab descendant peoples and business leaders and organizations. The groups that I really focused on in this analysis are kind of on the ground organizations in Argentina, Brazil and Chile in particular, who are specifically dedicated to promoting commercial ties between Latin America and the Arab world. And so there are different kinds of economic organizations, chambers of commerce, and otherwise um, that are kind of devoted to either promoting trade, commercial relations more broadly, financial flows, um, and also in some cases, cultural and other ties between their respective countries and then the Arab world in general. And then there are also some kinds of bilateral organizations that work specifically between their home Latin American countries and then particular countries in the Arab world. That's a really excellent introduction and listeners will note that you're doing this interview in a thunderstorm, so hopefully we'll get through. Now, one of the things that you say in the book is that the study of this particular community is a corrective to the tendency to view global business elites through a global north lens or through global north-north relations. Why do we need that corrective? My work seeks to serve as a corrective in numerous regards. The very focus on South-South relations, using that term for these purposes unproblematically, although it is a very complex term to talk about the Global South or South-South relations, and there's certainly some unpacking 
to be done there, some of which I, I do in the book itself. But what one tends to see, of course, in kind of conventional studies of international relations, as I document in the text, is that the global north and north-north relations are typically taken as normal and as the starting point for all manner of analyses. And certainly when we're talking about theory building exercises, the North Atlantic world very conventionally serves as the reference point. And so I take it as a starting point that we should also think about the world from other perspectives and that there's value to looking at diverse kinds of phenomena from the perspective of different kinds of actors. Thinking about global elites in particular and this body of literature that I refer to here as the quote global capitalism school, uh, much of which is coming out of a kind of critical international global political economy perspective with certain Marxist kinds of leanings as well. Much of that literature, too, is very much focused on global North elites. There are very good reasons to focus on global North elites, given the way that the global economy is structured and who exercises power therein. Nonetheless, in the context, again, of this kind of changing world order and the rise of certain kinds of global South actors, it does provide an interesting vantage point for thinking about the global economy to see how different sorts of actors from outside of the non-traditional core are also exercising agency in the global system. And I should say as well that insofar as we're interested in class analysis and thinking about class dynamics, this is a global elite of a certain kind, at least, or kind of self-styled global elite or people who would be classified as a global elite, even though they're based in the global South. I've been very interested throughout my different projects in thinking about how Latin American actors exercise agency and looking at elites on the ground, how they kind of operate and what are their world-making efforts. By focusing on the role of these sorts of efforts, it's not meant to elide the structural inequalities and imbalances in the global system or posit that capitalist elite sitting somewhere in Latin America operates in precisely the same way as, as a counterpart in the global north. But insofar as you know, it is a world order in which there is a rising, quote unquote, global south, um, in which there is a significant amount of capitalist exchange happening in the global south. And there are very powerful economic actors located in the global south and lots of economic flows happening within the global south, between global south regions. Focusing on and foregrounding the role of global south actors, I think, is really important for developing a more holistic view of how the global system operates. You write that this Marxist-inspired global capitalism school, on the one side, seems to converge with Samuel Huntington-style conservative punditry on the other, that a new global capitalist exists who has little or no need of national loyalty and who lives in a world that is effectively without borders. And you're skeptical of that view, right? Why is that? And how does that skepticism animate your inquiry? When I started working on this project, I actually wasn't particularly skeptical of that view. In fact, I regarded it as quite commonsensical and straightforward, this notion that I interrogate in the text that so-called global elites have global identities, a global sense of self, and kind of a global notion of a class consciousness. As I proceeded with the project, I was really just interested in figuring out to what extent we could determine if this is actually the case, because as I delved into this research area, one thing I noticed in particular that was quite striking is that there was just very little empirical evidence on offer. And so I became quite curious about thinking about the extent to which this is a kind of commonsensical notion. Again, it made sense to me as well, but there didn't actually seem to be that much empirical backing for it. The other part of this, which I also found curious as I dug deeper and deeper, is precisely what you mentioned, the extent to which there is a real kind of cross-ideological convergence over this question of a global kind of capitalist elite identity. So as I seek to document pretty carefully in the text, we can find all sorts of references to this idea from all across the political spectrum. You mentioned Samuel Huntington, and he writes a, a rather well-known essay published in 2004, I believe, called Dead Souls, which is referring to this kind of Davos man figure, which he's chastising for being insufficiently committed to the national project. And it's an earlier version of a Trump-like argument lambasting the elite, uh, including, in his case, cultural and intellectual elites for being insufficiently patriotic and nationalistic. So we have that kind of right-wing rhetoric 
that, of course, gets carried forward over time. Um, but we also see this in all sorts of other areas as well. So much of the scholarship that I'm working with as I mentioned, is actually coming out of the Marxist-inspired left or somewhere within the Marxist tradition. And so we have this idea both on the left and the right, and then a number of centrist thinkers who are also espousing um, a similar kind of point. And you know, someone I point to here is Lawrence Summers, a very prominent economist in the U.S., head of the National Economic Council under Obama from 2009 to 2010, I believe who makes precisely this point that elites are stateless. And we find numerous examples of this. And so I became really interested by this cross ideological convergence layered on top of the fact that there didn't seem to be much actual empirical evidence for the ideational existence of this class. And so that's the really great contribution of your book. And we're going to go to the empirical contribution in a moment. Before we do that, I just want to put a couple of terms on the table and ask you to clarify them. What's the difference between globalism and transnationalism? I spent quite a lot of time in the course of this project, both seeking to understand those terms as they are posited and used by the thinkers with whom I'm engaging, uh, but also delineating the way that I would use them. And I should say in the former regard that it is quite confusing terrain. So in looking at many of the key works in this area, oftentimes there just aren't definitions offered at all or if they are offered kind of underspecified, um, especially between the notion of the transnational and the global, as you mentioned. I do think a kind of squishiness in how the term global is being used is a problem that could be leading to a kind of over-identification of global-related dynamics. And so one of the issues I point to then is that there may be a common identification of, say, economic elites having a global identity, in part because it's not being clearly specified what it actually means to have a global identity. One of the issues they identify in that regard is that there is commonly a kind of underlying and unstated premise that if somebody is kind of interested in profit-seeking everywhere, then that means they have a cosmopolitan identity. So the conventional way that these terms transnational and global are understood and used, kind of teasing this out, I think it's most useful to first turn to William Robinson, a very well-cited sociologist wrote a very well-cited book on the theory of global capitalism and a text focusing on Latin America's experience in global capitalism and several other texts kind of fleshing out his theory of global capitalism. He refers to the difference between a kind of a world economy and then a global economy. And this distinction that he draws comes out of the late 70s through the 1990s period in particular. There was a lot of debate going into the 90s and 2000s about globalization and what that term actually meant and to what extent the kind of globalization that was being experienced was actually different from previous periods. People would offer quantitative analysis full of international trade and some would argue, for example, that there was actually more international trade in the pre-World War I period than there was after the end of the Cold War. The distinction that he's drawing is not a quantitative one, precisely. It's more qualitative in nature. And what he's really pointing to with the rise of what he calls a transnational economy is that accumulation is not happening in precisely the same way. So in the old kind of world economy, what he's describing is that you had nationally discrete economies where, say, a corporation within a given country would then export to another place, import things from that other place. Um, but it was very much a story of a global economy defined or a world economy defined by discrete national units. What happens, again, going through the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond is that there's, as he describes it, is there's kind of a transnationalization of production and accumulation. And so you get the rise of these transnational supply chains. It's common to see these articles asking about whether these days you can actually pinpoint the nationality of a car, for example. You have components coming from several different countries and then getting shipped to Mexico to be assembled and then coming to the U.S. to be put together into the final vehicle. What is the actual nationality of the car at the end of the day? And so this kind of transnationalization of supply chains is being argued by Robinson in particular as the kind of definition of the transnational. 
how this is put more broadly is that the transnational refers to a kind of simultaneous embeddedness in multiple national spaces. A lot of this literature comes out of a focus on migration and migratory dynamics and thinking about long distance nationalism and how people in countries away from home then develop mixed sets of attachments between two different places. And so it's really a story then of simultaneous embeddedness in different spaces. What often occurs within this literature is that there's a kind of conflation of transnationalism and globalism to the extent that they're often used interchangeably or in just unclear ways. And so I attempt to offer a clear definition of what would make the global different from the transnational. And so if the transnational in terms of identity and class consciousness is about simultaneous embeddedness in multiple spaces, a global identity would involve, as I argue, a kind of positive set of attachments to a cosmopolitan group of actors. So not just a simultaneous embeddedness in more than one place. What a global identity would involve is a kind of active identification with a border crossing group that exists at the global level and that is truly cosmopolitan as well as, as I describe in the case of thinking about this kind of economic elite, um, a kind of positive attachment to a global capitalist political project. And so that's the kind of fine point that I seek to put on what would separate a global capitalist elite um, from one that were simply transnational. Great. And you do other really important conceptual work early in the book, but I'm sure that listeners are keen to get into the field with you. So let's move there now. You interviewed members of business elites for the book. Um, who did you interview and how? I conducted several dozen interpretivist relational interviews, borrowing Lian Fuji's term, um, with members of what I call an Arab Latin American, for the most part, merchant capitalist elite people who are involved in trade relations and promoting trade relations, who are involved with these kinds of economic organizations, chambers of commerce and otherwise in the ground. We're kind of making global capitalism happen, as I describe it. Many of them are also involved in their own kinds of private business activities. But the way that I'm encountering them for the most part is as part of entities that are explicitly dedicated to the promotion of inter-regional trade. I frame them as a kind of merchant capitalist elite insofar as they work in the promotion of commerce and economic flows. They don't always meet in their activities, um, kind of a classical definition of a capitalist. We're not always talking about the owners of the means of production per se, but they are really people whose efforts are really fundamental to making global capitalism happen on the ground. And particularly as I witness in building this axis of South-South relations. In terms of the interviews themselves, it was a very, I, I should say, challenging process in, in many different ways. I didn't immediately have any inroads in these communities. You could imagine an unknown researcher from the United States wouldn't necessarily have lots of doors immediately open to them in these kinds of circles. And it was actually after reaching out to one of my interviewees in particular, who just responded to me right away and was very enthusiastic that I was able to make other connections. I mean, he really helped open a lot of doors for me with other figures because we are talking about people who, you know, even if they're not at the level of fame because of, of their economic activities, um, are nonetheless quite busy um, and you know, are heavily involved in elite level activities of different kinds. Um, so it was really important to have that kind of connection in, in order to open those doors. It's worth briefly in that regard also commenting on positionality because it did become very clear to me as well. First of all, you know, almost all of the people I write about and all the people I write about at length are male. And that's just a reflection of the demographics of that world. And I do think that being male myself was unfortunately, in a sense, helpful for building those kinds of connections that allowed these conversations to happen. Being an outsider also brought certain kinds of privileges, um, you know, from the quote unquote global north, from the United States. It brought with it, I could see a sense that I enjoyed a kind of privilege, even though as a, as a grad student, certainly, uh, you know, they were in much more privileged circumstances than I was in, in most respects, at least financially and otherwise. Um, but being from the United States did allow me to build a certain kind of rapport that wouldn't necessarily have been the case otherwise. One who then also spoke the language 
or spoke the languages, um, who was able to interview people in both Spanish and Portuguese, who spent years living in, in different parts of the region, was also really helpful in, in allowing me to build rapport and you know have a kind of common set of cultural understandings that would facilitate these conversations. You've mentioned rapport. That's something that Lian Fuji suggests is not necessary or perhaps is not as important for the type of relational interviewing that she's advocating for as other dimensions or other aspects, in particular an ethos that's concerned with the humanity of others. What form did the rapport take there in your own inquiries and what other aspects of Fuji's relational interviewing approach did you find um, um, interesting or useful for your purposes? How did relational interviewing both uh, inform and characterize your uh, research practice? I started this project, like I think is is often the case, um, because this arose out of my dissertation. Even though I had had specific training through coursework and through attending workshops and, and so forth with interpretivism, nonetheless, in part through the IRB process, the Institutional Review Board process, I was primed to think about these in more positivistic ways, even in sort of implicitly, even though that wasn't my actual background. So in terms of rapport itself, I found that in this particular cultural context, that it was actually extremely important to be able to spend time at the beginnings of these conversations talking about other unrelated things. You know, I was actually surprised, given in part, you know, we're talking about elites and people with very busy schedules, how long we would end up talking about things that had nothing to do with the actual purpose for why I was there. You know, this very commonly took the form of, of talking about political events or very commonly as well as I was traveling during certain high level or high profile um, soccer matches and tournaments, talking about last night's match, talking about family issues as well. Um, my own experiences having lived around the region and traveled and what brought me there. I have a Chilean accent in Spanish. My wife is Chilean. That frequently came up in conversation as, as something that people were interested in. And I think also um, in its own peculiar way, helped to lend me a, a kind of credibility as a conversation partner. But I did find that in this case and within this kind of Arab Latin American cultural milieu that, um, you know, not jumping straight into interview questions, which I, I'll say I tried to do once for the very first conversation and it went quite terribly as, um, as I'm not surprised by in hindsight, was actually extremely important. And, you know, it wasn't the case of me kind of having an agenda, but for, you know, I'm going to go in there and talk about my family or talk about last night's match or something else. It was really just going with the flow and, and letting the conversation happen. And I think that's extremely important for what I was doing methodologically as well, because I was really trying to see what made them tick in a way and what they found to be important. And so allowing them a significant amount of control in that way over the flow of the conversation, the topics that would be introduced and so forth, was actually extremely important. People often said things that I found quite shocking, at times very classist comments, very nationalistic ones about neighboring countries, sort of denigrating comments as well, um, you know, things that could not be included in the in the book itself for, for various reasons, even though all of the interlocutors are, are given pseudonyms. Um, and so I, I did see that the interviewees tended to have a very significant amount of comfort in the conversations, which both surprised and, and flattered me and, and made the analysis much easier in a way. Um, and I do think that had a very significant amount to do with the extent to which I gave them a lot of control over the conversation. You referred also to thinking about the humanity of others and in allowing them this degree of agency to guide the conversations, you know, I, I think the methodology allows for that. On the other hand, these were different conversations than a lot of those that often unfold in the social sciences. I list a statistic uh, given by a Brazilian author in the text. This is just sort of an impressionistic number, not, not the result of actual empirical analysis, but he mentions that something like 99% of work in the social sciences is focusing on oppressed and marginalized groups. 
that's high, I'm sure, but the, the number I'm sure is also quite high. Um, and I, I seek to provide a corrective to that. But insofar as I wasn't dealing with an oppressed group, even though it is a Southern group or a South-South group that is marginalized in certain kinds of ways, but is certainly not economically marginalized, that made the question of how to think about agency and humanity a bit different. As I wasn't as concerned as one may be in other cases about a kind of power imbalance um, between the, you know, me as the conversation partner and the interlocutor. Because in many ways, of course, most ways, perhaps, they exercise more power than I do. Speaking about relational interviews more broadly, and, you know, Leanne Fuji's work was very important in this regard, Fred Schaefer's as well, which will, of course, be familiar to listeners. If I think back to the very first interview I did, even though this was not my my kind of training as an, as an interviewer, a conversation partner, so to speak, I found that I fell into a very formulaic conversation style that was really about going through a sequential list of questions um, and making sure that I got to everything and I got to everything in order. And the results of that were simply not very useful. It was a difficult, kind of frustrating conversation. Fortunately, I had the chance to speak with this person again later. What I really took from Leanne Fuji and, and Fred Schaefer and others was precisely um, engaging in these conversations as a kind of exchange and, again, allowing the interlocutor's agency over how the conversation would transpire and not allowing a kind of preconceived plan to determine the path of the dialogue, which would then forestall my ability to actually learn what they cared about and what they thought and how their identities are constituted great advice. And I should note for listeners that we do have an interview with two of uh, Leanne Fruti's students, Jessica Sudogo and Ari Glass, on her interviewing text in the Routledge series on interpretive methods. Check that out if you haven't done so already. Listeners, we're going to pause here just for a moment for a sponsor's message and pick up where we left off. A reminder that this is the New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science series on the New Books Network, and we're discussing Kevin Funk's Rooted Globalism. Kevin, the two chapters of the book where the interviews are set out consist in large part of a number of vignettes. And these vignettes, I think, speak really well to your interpretive interviewing approach. It'd be great, I think, for listeners just to get a sense of one or two of those vignettes. You referred a while ago to the person who gave you those initial points of entry and access to these communities. That's Diego McCool. Could you tell us a little bit about Diego? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll take a, a slight step back to address the, the first part of your comments as well. Again, even though I had been trained in interpretivism, I was very fortunate to take a class as a PhD student in interpretive approaches with my advisor, Ida Oren. After I, I came home from the field, I had done all of the interviews and I was sitting down to write. I found that I was immediately producing text that very much replicated a kind of positivist style of data presentation. It was very much a, a kind of utilization of quotes to support particular arguments where my voice was driving the narrative. I remember starting to do that, starting to produce that sort of text without thinking about it, and then stopping and, and realizing that that was very unsatisfying to me, that it, it didn't feel like the writing style and the presentation of the realities that I encountered on the ground was actually matching my own methodology and epistemological underpinnings as well. And so it was then that I really decided that I I was going to scrap what I had written and start over and write these instead in terms of ethnographic vignettes. The one that you mentioned, Diego Macul, and again, these are these are all pseudonyms um, to protect identities. He's a Chilean business figure of Palestinian descent, and it's worth noting here that Chile has the largest population of people of Palestinian descent of any country in the world outside of the Middle East. I start with him for a few reasons, one of them being that, as you noted, he was really my key interlocutor who then opened a lot of doors for me. He was the first person I interviewed for this part of the project. He also became the last person I interviewed, and so there was kind of a full circle element to this. He's a very important figure in a lot of different ways, a key protagonist. Uh, and he's also somebody who was extremely open, granted me a tremendous amount of access 
and had a very evocative way of speaking and discussing his own reality that I think provided a tremendous amount of grist for the mill concerning how we think about identities and kind of classed intersectional identities um, and the question of whether this is actually a global capitalist class or whether someone like him forms part of a global capitalist class. Toward the end of the, the vignette, he struggles with this question of, of where to buy a suit. He's telling me that he needs a new suit. He has some upcoming trips. Uh, he's planning to go to Buenos Aires in Argentina. He's planning to go to Miami. I um, mean, he's asking himself kind of whether he should buy a suit in one of these places or whether he should simply buy a suit that's been made in Chile. And you get the sense from the conversation that he thinks that the suits produced abroad would be of higher quality but he has a kind of nationalistic impulse that makes him think that he, should, quote unquote, should buy a Chilean suit. And so I interrogate this as a moment where he's really reckoning um, with how he makes sense of his own place in the world. Vis-a-vis -vis in particular, another observation that he makes earlier, where he notes that he feels rather at home in different places around the world. And, you know, he's lived and traveled in, in numerous different places. Um, but he notes a sense of unease surrounding that. He's aware of a kind of globality of his own circumstances in life, but it's something that actually causes him some pause and, and trepidation. And so I thought it was a really interesting starting point precisely because he was so reflective about his own kind of nascent budding globality and that it was also something that produced a very complicated emotional response for him. Um, and he also marks a, an interesting contrast with some of the other interlocutors I described, some of whom are actually not very interested in self-reflection or in sharing self-reflection. And something I, I point out along those lines as well is that there's a kind of presumption that people who are occupying positions of economic power are very cognizant of their own positions and places in the world and what they're doing and why they're doing it. I mean, I think to a, to a certain extent that's true, but I also reveal that it can be the case that for many of these people, they're performing a certain kind of role and they can do that in a very routinized way that doesn't involve regular scrutiny of their day-to-day -day activities. And so they may not actually be that reflexive concerning what they're doing and how they think about themselves and their place in the world. It was another Chilean interviewee who I profile in the second of these empirical chapters, who actually thanked me at one point as I recount in the text, precisely because he thought that he didn't usually get the opportunity to reflect on what he was doing. He's, you know, he's immersed in a world of work as, as we all are, many of us are, I suppose, not actively engaged in questioning and criticizing and so forth. And so I, I think there's, there's an interesting contrast to kind of begin with this figure who's very reflexive and thinking about his own place in the world and then seeing that contrast and kind of the way we have very different levels of reflexivity, but also kinds of identities percolating um, throughout these different vignettes. The interviewee who you just referred to as thanking you for uh, giving him the opportunity to reflect on his position, I think that's Julio Valenzuela, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so he, of all of those whom you feature in the vignettes, is the one that you say is perhaps closest to the ideal type of the global capitalist. What is it about him that puts him in that category in contrast to, or tentatively in that category in contrast to all of your other interviewees? I should say in that regard that one of the arguments I make is that this notion in the in the literature that we can discreetly separate these actors into these kinds of categories in an unproblematic way, of course, ends up alighting a lot of differences and a lot of complexities. And if we're thinking about, say, a local capitalist versus a global capitalist, and that's our that's our categorization or a national capitalist, and that's our categorization scheme, and we're thinking about this all in terms of a continuum that doesn't allow us to think in terms of the complex ways in which the local, the national, the regional, the global, and so on are mutually co-constituting themselves. There's value in trying to think in terms of categories, of course, but also recognizing that complexity. And that's, that is precisely what I'm trying to do here. This last figure you mentioned, Julio Valenzuela, 
Um, he's somebody who talks about himself as having a, a permanent global vision. That's a, a term that he was using in his profile. He has a rather different background than my other interlocutors. Of those I profile here, he's the only one who actually doesn't evince or claim to have any Arab ancestry. And I also describe him as somebody who has the most, most kind of forthrightly global identity. And interestingly, in a way that actually evinces a more progressive political project than the other conversation partners that I'm describing. So he's a kind of a figure who exercises leadership within Chile's international trade bureaucracy, um, an experienced negotiator of trade deals and heavily involved in international commerce, kind of a, a jet setter in, in that way. And he's somebody who has a very kind of nationalistic discourse in a way, in that he would very frequently use the the word we in Spanish, nosotros. He was also very clear that he wanted his activities to kind of uplift the Chilean people, to contribute to national economic development and progress and so on. But he also described belonging to a kind of broader global community. And in part, this is traced back, kind of I tease out in the analysis, um, to his own formation, which again is is different from my other interlocutors. He's actually a, a medical doctor by training, studied in the United States, and you know espouses a kind of universalist ethos surrounding benefiting the global community and, and global humanity and, and wanting to contribute as he sees it through international trade to uh, a betterment of the human condition and greater overall prosperity and feeding people. He also noted that he often sees people within his global Rolodex of contacts more often um, than he does many of his own work colleagues who may only be on another floor of the same building in downtown Santiago. And so he really espouses this kind of layered local and global set of attachments that, as he describes them, are not actually mutually contradictory, but actually reinforce themselves. And that, that's not to say that from the kind of outside analyst perspective, me in this case, right, that there aren't certain kinds of tensions there. What I was really trying to uncover is, is how he makes sense of those tensions. The other two interlocutors in the second of the two chapters on the uh, interviews, the second of the two being concerned primarily with those who have a, a rootless quality rather than the rooted quality of those in the preceding chapter, those other two you suggest are rather more denational than global in their characteristics. Can you draw out that distinction for us? This is another category of analysis that I introduce here and try to clearly delineate. I see that a lack of clear definitions for these terms, that kind of conceptual confusion, or at least con implicit conceptual confusion, uh, is leading to some conclusions that don't necessarily reflect empirical realities on the ground, considering what elite identities are like, how global they are, and so forth. And so the first step to actually figuring those things out, in a sense, is to delineate what would such a thing look like in practice. The way I describe a denational identity and, you know, we could put this for argument's sake along a continuum. So, you know, if we start with this kind of national logic and identity, which is very much focused on a particular national space as its locus of identity and attachment and belonging, go further on the, the would-be continuum, the next step would be a transnational kind of identity, which again involves then simultaneous, simultaneous embeddedness in multiple national spaces. The national logic, but applied in more than one place. So place still matters. The denational context that I describe, which comes next within that stylized continuum, um, is a figure for whom place-based logics are no longer playing a guiding role. Um, in this case, in terms of what I'm interested, um, in terms of guiding business activity and, and kind of decisions about where to make profits and how. We know from kind of how people have talked about capitalism for a very long time, and thinking back to Marx certainly as well, you know, there's a structural kind of imperative through the capitalist system for economic elites to seek profit. That is the way that the system operates. But I argue that that doesn't necessarily tell us the whole story because there's still decisions to be made about where particular figures would seek profits, what opportunities they would identify to seek profits, what they're kind of predisposed to see. 
what kinds of cultural capital they may have that make them better suited to pursue certain kinds of profit-seeking endeavors over others. And so what I argue here then is there is this denational place along the stylized continuum um, where we have these figures who really don't seem like they're guided by any particular kind of place-based logic. Um, and so we have these two figures you're referring to here from this chapter, both of whom are of Syrian descent, one Argentine, one Brazilian, um, but who really express a kind of disinterest in their own Syrian heritage insofar as it relates to their economic activities. They kind of acknowledge their own Syrian background, their family stories, but it really has nothing to do, as they describe it, with their own business activities, except that the level of feeding into them being read as Arab and having a certain kind of interest and predisposition to engage in economic relations with the Arab world. And so I describe them as being denational to the extent that they do not have a clear place-based logic to the way that they seek to accumulate capital. One of them notes that he really could be doing business anywhere. It just so happens that because of his own Syrian background, you know, he's read as being Arab in different spaces. That kind of predisposes him to see economic opportunities in the Arab world. He says he was one of the first people from Latin America to be engaged in building these relations. And so it's really for that reason. It's not for that reason. It's not because of any set of deeper kinds of attachments. That kind of denational lack of place-based logic is different, as I describe, from the global set of attachments that I mentioned earlier. So not having a place-based imaginary is different from having a positive set of attachments to a global community, capitalist or otherwise. And so I really seek to make a fine distinction here between those who just seem to have place decentered for them and those who actually actively have a sense of belonging to a cosmopolitan group of peers the world over. Who are those who would actually comprise the members of a global capitalist class? So we end up in this situation that, or an interpretation that perhaps this global capitalist class is less real than it's made out to be, and that capitalism is in fact more rooted than the impression is often created, whether through academic work or through publicity campaigns, including those that you discuss in a chapter subsequent to the interviews that we're not going to have time to speak about today. A reader who's skeptical of your arguments might say that, well, Perhaps the problem is that you didn't get access to, for whatever reasons, to this global capitalist class that does exist and that your data has skewed your results, as it were. How would you respond to that type of criticism? Or indeed, if you have had that type of criticism, how have you responded? It's certainly an, an issue I thought about. Something that I, I state forthrightly at, at one point in the text that this is not a most likely research design. I did not start with this idea of trying to identify a global capitalist class and didn't choose the, the kind of most likely case that would produce that result in order to see if it existed on the ground. I fully acknowledge in this text that there are multiple reasons you know, why this might not be the most obvious place to look for global capitalist identities, you know, in part because we're talking about a group of people, uh, many of whom have ethnic or cultural ties to the region under discussion um, and are kind of between regions in terms of their own migratory histories and, and family linkages. So I think there's certainly validity to the rejoinder in the sense that if one were looking for the most obvious case of a global capitalist identity, perhaps a more apparent place to begin would be on Wall Street or in certain kinds of corporate boardrooms. On the other hand, this kind of presumption that is commonly had, which again, I had myself as I started the analysis, that there is a global capitalist elite with a global capitalist kind of set of identities and a global class consciousness. There isn't actually necessarily, from my perspective, that good of a reason to expect that class to exist in that kind of global way. So, I, I mean, I do think that even if my case is not meant to be representative, it should at least give us pause and cause us to think that maybe the fact that the analysis I'm presenting intends to demonstrate, or this is what comes through the analysis, that capitalist elite identities are not so unproblematically global as is often posited, I do think that should give us some pause and some reason to then more seriously interrogate um, the entire theoretical apparatus, so to speak. As I was saying just a moment ago, 
as I processed these ideas and, and was thinking about where this notion of a global capitalist class comes from and, and really um, wrestling with the literature and, and the definitions and the genealogies of these ideas, something that ended up striking me as quite problematic is that within this tradition that we're talking about of, say, a global capitalism school and a lot of Marxist-inspired sociology, there is, of course, an idea that identities are linked to material realities. Now, as I delineate here as well, actually, global capitalism isn't quite so global in practice in numerous different ways. Of course, place still matters in lots of different respects. There's a spikiness to the system. You know, we know through the literature on global cities that there are agglomeration economies in different areas, you know, that have quite different dynamics percolating therein than other spaces which, which, within the same national territory. But the critique I'm really making goes in, a, in somewhat of a different direction, insofar as global capitalism and neoliberalism are heavily reliant on state power. They're very much political projects. You know, this was Polanyi's old argument in The Great Transformation about the rise of liberalism, certainly. Um, this has become, a, again, a, a much more common understanding of neoliberalism through the work of Quinn Slobodian and others, his book Globalists that neoliberalism's implementation has really relied on state power. Um, you know, thinking as well about Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin's classic text, The Making of Global Capitalism. It's very much a story about the role of the U.S. state in globalizing U.S. capital and creating the rules of the game and the institutions that would allow for global capitalism to function. And so it becomes apparent that the state actually plays a significant role within this quote-unquote global system. Um, that's certainly global in certain ways, but it relies very much on different kinds of state and place-based power. Now, if that's the case, if state power actually matters in a lot of different respects in global capitalism, then it doesn't become very apparent why we should necessarily expect that elite identities actually wouldn't have place-based logics to them. Especially, again, if we're presuming that identity has something to do with material reality. Um, and so I frame this as a kind of ontological critique, where, again, if we kind of follow the argument that global capitalism has something to do with state power, it's mutually imbricated with state power, then that suggests if we believe that identity has something to do with materialism, that identity probably has some sorts of linkages to place and territory as well. Um, and so in that regard, I kind of take a step further back and unpack that presumption that we should expect global elites to actually have global identities in the first place. But if global capitalism is actually a system defined by all sorts of messy entanglements between different kinds of global flows, but also place-based authorities and national communities and identities and so forth, then we should expect messier forms of class consciousness as well. And uh, you say in concluding the book that this is important, not only thinking or rethinking the literature on global capitalism, but also because it has real political consequences. Two that you identify are that, uh, just to read directly from the text, that if place-based imaginaries are in fact quite resilient, then there are stronger grounds for considering how to engage in more meaningful forms of domestic and global governance. And secondly, focusing on the life worlds of individual economic elites helps to expose the fragmentary and partial nature of capitalist hegemony. Would you like to speak to either of those before we conclude? I really took the question of the book's political project seriously. I mean, actually thinking about the, the interpretivist ethos of this project, actually in the initial iteration, that part wasn't very clear. And I was actually very helpfully and, and thankfully pushed to do that by, by one of the reviewers of the text. And to go back to a point I made earlier, there is this peculiar kind of cross-ideological shared belief in the notion of a global capitalist elite with a global identity that kind of runs roughshod over state sovereignty. And so, you know, we can, again, find this all over the place from Samuel Huntington, these kind of Marxist-inspired sociologists, also classical neoliberal theorists, Hayek and Mises and so on. And there's a kind of defeatism that arises from this set of ideas. I don't think it's the intention, certainly, of the people who are making these arguments from a, a left or progressive perspective. Um, but to the extent that they're arguing that there is this kind of capitalist elite that has fully detached itself and divorced itself from the state, that's running totally roughshod over state sovereignty, 
um, that really can't be controlled or regulated in any meaningful way, that doesn't seem very likely to actually inspire people on the ground to any kind of real world action. Um, instead, what it does is that it really reifies um, the agency of capitalist elites and the hegemony of the capitalist system. And so I, I try to interrogate how we ended up at this place where that kind of neoliberal rhetoric, you know, is read through Hayek, Mises and others about building this neoliberal world order in which capitalist elites asserted ultimate authority. What are the implications of parts of the left taking on that argument and how that feeds into a kind of defeatism that, you know, in some very small way, the book then tries to contest by showing um, that those, those identities aren't necessarily that global, that capitalism itself has all sorts of place-based entanglements, and that that then allows us some space for thinking about how capitalism as a political project is much more fragmentary and, and porous um, than this idea of a kind of fully mobile, detached global capitalist class um, mm. suggests for us. And yet you also warn in the conclusion of the book against an, an anti-globalist agenda, whether from the right or the left, and suggests that the possibility exists that you know, this notion of global citizenship could be something other than what neoliberal propaganda wants to make it out to be. How so? One of the aspects of this that I wrestle with in text, again, as I, I was being pushed by this reviewer to put forth uh, the book's political project, um, is it's a reading of our contemporary political moment or one particular aspect of, of our contemporary political moment. And seeing on the one hand, this kind of anti-globalist rhetoric as espoused by figures on the right and far right, and we should say as well that this goes hand in hand with a certain kind of nativism, nationalism, a kind of quote-unquote right-wing populism. That's kind of being framed as one end of the debate. And then the other end of the debate is a kind of sunny globalist rhetoric that is being espoused by corporate actors you know, that are telling you the story that we're all connected. There's a universal humanity. We can all travel and fly across the world. We can all use the same banks and so on. And so these are being put forth as two ends of a debate, right? So there's this kind of right-wing politics of place that is arguing against a kind of corporate globalism. I become interested in intervening in that debate and making sure, first of all, that that doesn't end up framing the actual debate because those are both problematic positions from my perspective. And we need to be able to think beyond them. I mean, I'm particularly interested in that regard in making sure that the kind of left progressive response doesn't become trying to posit a different form of nativism in order to combat that kind of sunny globalist corporate rhetoric, that we don't fall into kind of responding to that with a different kind of place-based logic. But instead, I'm trying to kind of recapture internationalism and cosmopolitanism from those corporate actors, but assert in a different way that's more inclusive and that actually allows us to address the challenges of our time, including climate change and growing inequality. Big points on which to conclude. Kevin Funk, thank you again for coming on to discuss Rooted Globalism. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Listeners, I recently heard someone say that the New Books Network is their secret weapon, that any time they're going to attend a talk on a topic that they're not already familiar with, they download and listen to a number of episodes on that topic from the network. So why not make it your secret weapon too? Go to the website and you'll find that there are 16 other episodes in this series that you can check out. And you can also scroll through any of the other channels and series that are available for you and download any of the contents free of charge from wherever you get your podcasts.